This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Okay, thank you very much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Um, this is a uh, topic that is sometimes very confusing. Um, I think interesting, um, and I hope you feel the same. Um, about halfway through this thing. Um, well, let's uh, start. So uh, principles of radiation disasters. Um, just quickly, a financial disclosure slide. I do not have any stock in any um, radiation uh, companies or anything like that. So here's what I uh, hope to uh, get through uh, during this uh, presentation. So learning objectives for this presentation is to uh, know the difference between ionizing and non-ionizing radiation. Uh, to understand the different types of radiation exposures and their consequences, uh, to become familiar with the types of radiation threats that exist, to understand the long and short-term health consequences of a radiation exposure, and to become familiar with ways that you can protect yourself uh, during uh, the unlikely uh, radiation event. Let's start off with the very basics. Um, I'm not a physicist. I'm a physician. Uh, And so there's some things about radiation that I will, unfortunately, not be all the way up to date about. Because, uh, as you know, uh, physicists who specialize in this this, uh, area of physics are people like Albert Einstein, right? And uh, I'm definitely not up to par with uh, uh, Albert Einstein. Uh, But we will uh, nonetheless try to get through at least some of the basics so we can understand what is radiation and what does it do. So the most uh, basic definition of radiation is the subatomic particles, electromagnetic waves that can interact with matter. Matter being you, me, um, inanimate objects, anything. Okay. There's two different types of radiation that we talk about, and only one of them is really uh, the type that we are focusing on tonight, and that's the ionizing radiation. This is the type of radiation that is powerful enough to affect your DNA and to cause problems with your uh, DNA and break bonds. Um, the low-energy non-ionizing radiation uh, is not powerful enough to affect DNA bonds, and uh, you, you'll be familiar with uh, some of those types of radiation as well. This slide illustrates the different types of radiation um, from the non-ionizing side to the ionizing side of the spectrum. For the non-ionizing side, um, you have things like radio waves and microwaves, infrared, um, even the visible light spectrum. These are all technically types of radiation, uh, but these radiations are not powerful enough to uh, affect your uh, DNA bonds. It's not going to damage you per se unless it's focused like a microwave, you know, very, um, uh, you know, very directly uh, at your person. Uh, when you move towards the ionizing type of radiation, we look at things like ultraviolet light. So that's like sunlight. And we're all familiar with things like sunburns, right? That is a radiation injury. Uh, you have ionizing radiation and ultraviolet light that is causing injury. Uh, and then the type of uh, radiation such as X-rays and gamma rays, uh, these are extremely powerful types of radiations that have uh, uses in medical science, uh, uses in, um, unfortunately, warfare, and terrorism, and all kinds of different things, mostly good things, um, especially things like nuclear power, which can be beneficial, but can also something we need to respect and can cause some problems, too, as we'll, we'll uh, see moving on. Focusing a little bit more on uh, ionizing radiation, these are divided into um, really four different types. Alpha radiation um, 
this type of radiation is really not powerful enough to uh, penetrate the skin. Uh, it can be stopped just by a sheet of paper and will kind of just bounce right off your skin. Uh, this uh, radiation, if you're exposed to it from an external source, is not going to injure you. Um, however, if you ingest this type of radiation, it can be very dangerous. And um, one of the more dangerous types of radiation is we'll find, again, moving forward. Uh, beta radiation, uh, this can penetrate and can get just a little bit inside the skin and can cause some problems. Uh, gamma and x-rays, we're familiar with pictures uh, doctors take of us, um, can definitely penetrate you completely and uh, can uh, get all the way through your body and can cause problems. Um, it can also do things like treat cancer. It can also do things like provide um, medical professionals with imaging so that they can you know, treat what problems uh, you may have. And so this is... Uh, um, a really important type of radiation. And finally, neutron radiation, also very strong penetration, and most of its uses are in nuclear power and nuclear weapons. In terms of how do we talk about radiation, um, for our purposes, what we're most interested in when we talk about the type of radiation or the dose of radiation that we um, uh, are exposed to is uh, RADS or REM. That's kind of our... Uh, the traditional uh, terminology, gray and sievert is their um, international unit. Uh, we're going to probably focus more on RADS and REM because a lot of the, the literature uses RADS and REM when they're kind of going through the basics of radiation. Um, and to put that kind of in perspective, all of us, just by living our lives, walking on this earth, being exposed to sunlight, being exposed to um, radiation from rocks in the ground, we're going to get about 300 millirem of radiation per year. It's unavoidable. It's just part of our life. Okay? A chest x-ray is going to expose you to about 10 millirem of radiation at one moment in time. If I were to get a CAT scan of your head, you'd get about 200 millirems of radiation at one moment in time. Almost a year's worth of radiation in just that study. When I order an abdominal CAT scan, I'm exposing you to a very large amount of radiation, three years' worth of the radiation you would have otherwise received just walking around the Earth. Okay? And if you are someone who wanted to fly from New York to London, um, you would get four millirems of radiation just being that much closer to the sun. Okay, so that's kind of put things in perspective when we start talking about REMs and RADs. Okay, so millirem is you know, one one thousandth of a REM, and a REM is roughly equal to a RAD. Okay, so a REM and a RAD um, are, are roughly equal when we uh, move forward here. Uh, the lethal radiation dose, which is really germane to our discussion today. Um, in toxicology or any time we talk about poisoning or dosing of, of even a medication, we'll often talk about an LD50. And what that means is that's the dose of radiation or dose of any substance that it would take to kill half of the individuals who would receive it. So if there were two of us standing here and we each got a dose of the LD50 dose of radiation, on average, one of us would be able to survive it and one of us would not be able to survive it. Okay, for radiation, we're talking about 450,000 millirems, and that's as a single dose at one time. All right, remember if we go back to this slide here, we're talking about me ordering 450 abdominal CT scans on you at a single moment in time. Okay, so it's a massive dose of radiation for the LD50 dose. People who are exposed to a million millirems, or about a thousand rads, um, that dose is considered universally fatal. Okay. So types of exposure, um, internal 
radiation exposure. This is more of a rare um, occurrence. There's not a whole lot of um, cases in the literature about internal exposure, but this is when you inhale or ingest a radioactive substance and it starts to become radioactive within your body. Your cells and your tissues take it up, and then you yourself become a radioactive substance. Okay, um, Examples of this could be ingesting contaminated water, food, or breathing in particles if there were a radiation event um, uh, that radi- radioactive materials were released into the air. Okay. This, this grave right here is one of the more recent examples of a person who suffered and unfortunately succumbed to the effects of an internal radiation exposure. Uh, his name was Alexander Litvinenko. Okay, the circumstances around his death are still quite shady, but he was... Yes, this gentleman was poisoned with uh, polonium-210. This was an alpha-emitting radiation substance. It was estimated it was probably about the size of a grain of sand that they were able to somehow get into his food. And over the next six months or so, he became very sick um, and uh, unfortunately succumbed to his uh, injuries. Uh, He became so personally radioactive that things like his car or his home, areas where he would sweat or just oils of his body would touch things, they became radioactive and became unlivable for about a period of six months or so. You could not even enter those facilities. So it was a a good example of the dangers of internal radiation exposure um, and a a very sad example, too, Um, and still quite a controversial one in terms of who did it, right? Contamination. So this type of exposure would be if you got a radioactive substance on your person. Okay, so you, you know, for whatever reason, were, were playing with a radioactive device and got some of the radioactive substance on your body. That's considered you're contaminated with radio, radiation. Okay, when you're contaminated with a substance like radiation, a radioactive substance, you require decontamination before you're able to be you know, effectively uh, treated by medical personnel and first responders. And so you would have people approaching you in this type of getup um, if you were uh, radioactive con- or you had radioactive contamination. Now, this is in direct contrast to irradiation. I think this is a, a kind of a, a key point between contamination and irradiation. All right. When you are irradiated, that means you are exposed to a radioactive substance. It's not on your person, but the radiation from that substance has passed through your body as a field. Okay. This is a more common type of radiation injury, and we see it in medicine um, from things like radiation therapy from cancer, abdominal scans, or um, let's say you have to go to uh, the cardiologist to get a stent in your heart, and they're giving you uh, radiation so they can see where they're, they're moving their line. Um, to put that stent in your heart, this is your radiation. So you're not getting substances on your body, but the radioactive substance is emitting radiation onto you, okay? So it's an important, uh, it's an important distinction because just because you've had a radiation field pass through you does not mean you need to be decontaminated, okay, because you don't actually have substance on you. You've just been exposed to radiation. Does that make sense? Because it's, kind of it's kind of a difficult uh, concept a little bit. So what are the effects of radiation? So start with kind of the acute effects of radiation. What can you expect when you are exposed to a radioactive field? These are called non-stochastic effects. And uh, I don't 
know, honestly, where the term came from. But when you talk about radiation, you talk about the non-stochastic effects and the stochastic effects. The non-stochastics are what happens to you acutely, and the stochastic effects are things that are sequela from later on exposure to radiation. Okay? So cutaneous radiation injury. Um, this is one of the, the first effects and maybe one of the more common things that we would see in the medical field um, from radiation exposures. Okay, Oftentimes the reason that we would see an effect like this would be from a person who's undergoing radiation therapy for cancer. So they're intentionally having radiation beams you know, shot into their body to kill a cancer. Um, this gentleman... Um, this was on the FDA's website, and he was go- undergoing a heart catheterization procedure, getting a stent put in his heart. And the thing that's different about radiation burns versus just burns from you know a fire or something hot is that these burns show up gradually and get worse over time. Okay, so you probably can't see that well in this picture. He's this is eight to twelve weeks after his exposure uh, to the fluoroscopy in. Um, uh, a cardiac catheterization procedure. He's got this little ulcer right there. Okay, within 18 to 20 months, he's got this giant necrotic ulcer that's that's shown up, um, and it it became so difficult to treat that they ended up having to surgically remove that dead skin and graft um, skin onto that area. So it's it's a very painful. It's um, uh, oftentimes more difficult to treat than just a thermal burn or just a burn from heat uh, because uh, oftentimes its effects are delayed over time and you're not sure exactly how bad it's going to get. Okay. So whole body irradiation or acute radiation syndrome. So this syndrome um, is specifically... Uh, a type of syndrome that occurs when you're exposed, your entire body is exposed to a large dose of radiation. Okay? There's four phases to the acute radiation sickness or acute radiation syndrome. When you're initially exposed to a large amount of radiation, you have what's called the prodromal sta- uh, stage. Okay? So it's a very transient stage. Depending on the dose of radiation that you receive, the onset could be within minutes or it could be within days. The prodromal phase initially is usually associated with nausea and vomiting and feeling feeling terrible, um, and then it generally uh, starts to give way, and most people then have a latent phase. Your symptoms improve. Um, you start feeling better, and this can last from hours to weeks until you get to the manifest illness phase, and this is a dose-dependent phase, okay? And this can, ask, this can last for hours. It can last to months. And then finally, once you've had the manifest illness stage, it progresses to death or recovery, um, depending on the dose of radiation that you received and how you tolerated that dose. The general rule is the larger the dose of radiation, the shorter you progress through these stages. Okay, so if you receive a massive 1,000 rad dose of radiation, your prodromal to death recovery phase could be as short as you know 48 hours. If you receive a small dose of radiation, something like 70 rads or 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 something along that that line, uh, you may progress through this over the course of months or have some of these effects for years. So it, it really depends on the dose as to how quickly you progress. So there's a few syndromes within acute radiation syndrome, and these are the dose-dependent syndromes. So the the lowest dose that you can receive that would lead to acute radiation syndrome um, affects your um, hematopoietic system. Okay, so it's a hematopoietic syndrome. 
And uh, what this is, is uh, you receive a dose of radiation, something like 70 rads of radiation, um, and you have a prodrome. It can last anywhere, or, or it can occur anywhere from one hour to a few days after the exposure, and you start with nausea and vomiting, okay? This gives way, and you have a latent phase for a few weeks, and you move on to the manifest illness stage. And the manifest illness stage for hematopoietic syndrome is mostly fever and malaise. You probably continue to have some nausea um, symptoms as well. But what's happening is the radiation dose that you've received has killed the stem cells within your bone marrow, okay, or significantly declined the number of stem cells in your bone marrow. And so what the problem is, is you have now lost the ability to create cells that can fight infection. You've also lost the ability to create um, blood products like platelets that can keep you from bleeding. Okay, so that's a big problem when you are dealing with the hematopoietic syndrome is that you have a problem fighting infection, you have a problem being able to control bleeding. Okay, uh, the death recovery phase can take anywhere from weeks to years. Um, most people can recover, um, and some people do start to, we do start to see deaths around 120 rads of radiation. Okay, I'm sorry, this girl was a, a victim in Hiroshima. So acute uh, radiation syndrome uh, part two, uh, this is when you receive a dose anywhere from 600 to 1,000 rads of radiation. And I give some of these spreads because different sources give different doses of when they feel that this kind of comes on. Um, the prodrome of this, of this syndrome is uh, you typically will have an onset if you receive a dose large enough to cause a sim this syndrome, you'll have an onset within hours or so of severe vomiting, nausea, diarrhea. Um, with a latent phase about one week. This experiment here is actually, this photo is a recreation of an experiment that took place at uh, Los Alamos, um, uh, where a physicist named Louis Slotin um, uh, was exposed to a large dose of radiation and gave him something close to a gastrointestinal syndrome when you read about uh, his, his um, uh, effects afterwards and how he uh, finally succumbed to his uh, radiation dose. Uh, he said what happened was he was, he was uh, there's a plutonium core in here, and uh, he, and again, I'm not a physicist, so I probably won't explain this well, but he combined two pieces of metal that led to a critical mass, um, and uh, the, the people who witnessed this said the entire room started to glow blue, okay, and he dropped this core immediately, and the radiation stopped. Um, however, um, he immediately, within a few hours, started to develop severe nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, and eventually died um, from intestinal kind of necrosis. Okay, so his 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 gut finally gave out. Okay, and um, uh, ended up succumbing to his injuries. So, like I was just explaining with that last uh, uh, case, um, the manifest illness <laughs> stage of the gastrointestinal syndrome, you have severe diarrhea, fever, malaise. Um, and this is because your bone marrow, you still get the effects of the hematopoietic syndrome and the gastrointestinal syndrome both together now. Um, and your, so your bone marrow and your GI lining, your gastrointestinal lining of your stomach and your intestines have now both started to die. And so you'll have problems with infection still because your bone marrow has been affected. And you'll also have dehydration and electrolyte imbalances. Um, and this syndrome, because of the dose of radiation to cause it is so high, is typically uh, fatal um, to, to everybody who receives it within uh, two weeks. So acute radiation syndrome uh, finally has a, a third uh, subset called the cardiovascular neurologic syndrome. 
this is a universally fatal uh, dose of radiation, somewhere in the order of 2,000 to 5,000 rads of radiation at once. Uh, this gentleman, also unfortunately a Los Alamos victim, um, he uh, operated one of these mixing, uh, for lack of a better term, pots, I guess, or, um, and there was uh, plutonium within these. And he turned on the mixer, and the plutonium combined and let forth a big burst of radiation, um, upwards of 2,000 uh, rads of radiation. And um, he immediately fell to the floor and started saying, I'm burning up, and started to have bad vertigo symptoms and became confused. And uh, unfortunately, within 35 hours of being exposed to that massive dose of radiation, he, he passed away. Um, very, very sad case. The, the um, uh, civil case surrounding this actually was, was going up until somewhere in the 2000s. They were still um, you know, fighting a civil case about this, this incident. So again, the manifest illness stage can, can occur as quickly as five hours from the exposure. And again, you get all the effects that you would have from the, the hematopoietic syndrome and the uh, GI syndrome, but you also have a central nervous system um, effects as well at this point. And all of these things happen a lot more um, intensely and a lot sooner. Okay, so you die pretty quickly from hypotension or shock, um, which is your heart is affected. Um, you go into comas, you have seizures, and again, infection and dehydration can also be a problem. And uh, it's universally fatal within three days. Okay. And so how can we tell? Let's say we don't really know what dose of radiation you did receive, and you come in saying you were exposed to a radiation uh, source. Okay. Um, the way that we can prognosticate or find out how you're going to do, uh, despite being exposed to this radiation, is looking at what's called the Andrews lymphocyte nomogram. Okay, this is a, this is a kind of a plot that can help us figure out, um, you know, based on your um, lymphocyte count, uh, how severe the uh, dose of radiation was. And so, two days out, if I measure a lymphocyte count that's less than 100. I know that that's pretty universally lethal, okay? If I measure a lymphocyte count two days out and it's somewhere around 1,500, um, you know, up in this range here, you probably are going to survive that, but I'm going to have to be giving you a lot of support, okay? What can we do if you're exposed to a radiation event like this? Back when Cecil Kelly and Lewis Sloat and some of those other cases were exposed to injuries like this, there wasn't a lot. We didn't really even know what was causing the syndromes that they were having. Um, now we have some ideas, but again, this is not a, you know, radiation poisoning is not a, a sickness that we encounter often. There's been something like 400 cases in the last you know, 40 years. Okay, so it's not, not something that we have a lot of experiment, experience treating. Um, however, knowing how radiation affects us, we have ideas of you know, what we can do to, to try to get you through some of these episodes. Uh, most of the treatment that we're going to be providing in a radiation event is going to be supportive, um, giving you fluids, nausea medication, pain medication. Um, we're, of course, going to be trying to prevent infections because now you're going to be more susceptible to infections. You need antibiotics, antivirals, antifungals. Okay, and the other things that we're going to be looking at is how can we get your body to start fighting infections and things now on its own. Um, and that's going to be, there's certain medications that, that can try to stimulate the bone marrow to, you know, produce um, the, you know, white blood cells and other factors that you may need um, in order to survive these events. 
Uh, the other things that we can do, we give you transfusions of platelets. Sometimes we give you transfusions of stem cells. They've tried bone marrow transplants for some radiation victims and had some marginal success with that. Um, and so some cases are universally fatal, depending on the dose, but there are some things we can do, especially if you're in that hematopoietic syndrome type um, uh, radiation dose. Okay. So and not all of the effects are going to be physical. A lot of people who witness a radiation exposure... Um, even if they're not directly affected by radiation exposure, have a lot of psychological effects regarding this. Okay, um, There's an incident that happened in Guyana, uh, Brazil, um, where two gentlemen broke into an abandoned hospital and stole a radiation teletherapy capsule. So this thing is, has a core of cesium-137. That's the radioactive uh, substance. And it's wrapped up in this core. And they found this thing and thought, hey, maybe I can sell it for scrap. Okay, so they brought it home, and they spent days trying to break into this capsule with you know, sledgehammers and screwdrivers. And they were finally successful, um, despite the fact that they were both experiencing you know, bad symptoms of nausea and vomiting. They kept, they kept going. They didn't, they didn't you know, connect the dots that this device could be what's causing their symptoms. And so they finally got this stuff out, and this is a blue glowing substance, as, as most radioactive substances are, blue and glowing, and they thought it was amazing. And so they, they brought it to the local scrap dealer, and the scrap dealer said, this is great, and the scrap dealer brought it home to his children. His children picked the stuff up and said, what is this glowing substance? It's so fun. They painted their faces with it. You know, they, they, and people started to notice that everybody was getting sick from this, and so um, the wife of that scrap dealer finally said, you know, something's going on. And they, they brought him to the hospital, and, and they finally figured out, you know, this is, this is probably radiation poisoning. And this, this is a, a capsule that's used to treat people with cancer. And so unfortunately, uh, there were about four deaths from this exposure. Um, the, I believe this uh, scrap dealer did not die, but his wife and child did die. Um, and there was uh, a few others that died as well. Overall, there was only about 250 people who were actually exposed to this. Um, however, the population, just knowing this story and knowing that they lived in this area, pretty much all showed up at the hospital and wanted to get screened for a radiation exposure. Okay, And when you're in a small community like Guyana, Brazil, you have 125,000 people who now are panicking, thinking that they've got a, a radiation exposure, it can you know, put, the hall, put the brakes on your normal operations pretty quick. And so it's a, really, it's a very real effect, the psychological response from radiation. It said up to 5,000 people who were not even exposed had symptoms because they just had that in their head that you know, radiation was nearby. So let's talk about some of the, the stochastic effects, okay? the, the long-term effects of radiation. Anybody know who this is? Yeah, Marie Curie. She's she's won two Nobel prizes for her her research in uh, radiation. One of the first women to win a Nobel prize, um, and uh, did a lot of great research in radiation that really you know propelled our our uh, science forward. Unfortunately, at the time, she didn't know, as nobody did, that radiation could have deadly health effects. And so she was she was quoted often saying, you know, she'd carry the test tubes of radioactive substances around in her pocket, as if she was like kind of enamored by the faint blue glow that it was giving off. Um, and she um, never succumbed to acute radiation syndrome, but later on, she did end up uh, passing away, I believe, of uh, aplastic anemia. Uh, because over time her bone marrow was affected. 
But all cancers are increased by exposure to radiation. Uh, in general, the types, of blood, the types of cells that are most um, affected by radiation are cells that are rapidly dividing, um, are cells that are actively growing, okay, and actively being replaced. And so um, you think of cells such as, you know, um, uh, your blood cells. They're being actively dividing and replacing themselves all the time. They're very susceptible to radiation and can be affected with very small doses of radiation. You think of your neurons. Those are cells that do not divide often, if at all, and they, are, they take a lot larger doses of radiation to be affected by it, okay? And so we, we tend to see cancers in areas where you have rapid cell uh, division and rapid cell growth. Okay. There are some prenatal effects to radiation, as I'm, I'm sure many people are aware. Um, as the fetus is growing and dividing, again, rapid cell growth, rapid cell division, if you provide a big dose of radiation during that time, you can cause some birth defects, and some of them can be fatal, and some of them can lead to miscarriage. Um, and again, we also already talked about mental health consequences of radiation. Let's talk about uh, radiation and cancer. How does it cause cancer? This is a big discussion um, in the medical field, um, especially um, we talk about it in emergency medicine, which is the field that I'm that I'm in most often. Okay, this is uh, it's very nice to send people through the CAT scanner and get answers, you know, very quickly. Let's just send them through the CAT scanner. It'll make us all feel better because we have a normal CAT scan. We can send the people home. However, we have to think about this very carefully because, like I said, I send you through a CAT scanner and I'm giving you three years' worth of radiation in one moment in time. And that could potentially be dangerous for you. Um, and so I have to weigh the pros and cons of this and say, well, for a small child um, who my suspicion is very low that anything's wrong, but I still have some suspicion, would it be better to risk you know, cancer in 30 years in this child? because um, we know that about 1 in 1,800 children that I sent through a CAT scan machine I may cause cancer in in 30 years. Do I do that, or you know, do I maybe you know, admit them to the hospital, press on their belly more times, see if we really need it later on? Okay? And it can be a difficult decision to make. Ultimately, CAT scans have saved lives, and they're important, um, but we have to be in the medical, medical community. We have to be uh, responsible with how we use it because it can also damage health. Um, for those of you who may be more interested in it, uh, there's an Image Gently campaign that kind of gives uh, some more information about you know, responsible use of CAT scanners, especially in children, or ra all radiation in children. And uh, I also think it's important to mention, because there's a lot of hysteria around radiation, I think a lot of it comes from the media, a lot of it comes from Hollywood, um, what radiation does not do, okay? So radiation, being exposed to a massive dose of radiation is not going to spontaneously mutate you a third arm, okay? It's not going to you know, make a hybrid out of a cat and a bird. Um, it's not going to give you superhero powers, okay? The effects of radiation are very scientific, and we know how they affect the body, and they do cause damage. They cause cell damage, cause cell damage and they can cause mutations later on uh, through the cell lines and through generations of people. We have seen that. Um, however, these immediate effects creating monsters and creating you know, disfigured, you know, multi-armed people, like, those things do not happen. Okay. So that's kind of a, a large, um, you know, quick but 
a lot of information overview of the medical effects of radiation. Okay, we're going to kind of switch gears a little bit and talk about well, what are the, some of the areas that we may expect to have a radiation type event happen to us. Um, you know, what are the different types of radiation that are surrounding our own communities? Um, and I've kind of narrowed it down into three main areas that we would focus on in terms of possible radiation threats. Okay. There's the medical device exposure that I've, we've talked about quite a bit. Um, there's, there's war and terrorism. There's the dirty bomb, um, and there's the nuclear weapon. And then there's also nuclear power. This is a recent Fukushima example in 2011 is the, um, a good example of nuclear power exposures. I'm not going to spend, again, a lot of time on medical device radiation. We talked quite a bit about that in the Guyana incident with the um, teletherapy capsule. Um, and the type of radiation we may expect to be gamma and neutron radiation, strong penetrating uh, radiation that can can cause problems. The dirty bomb. So the dirty bomb is a distinct type of radioactive device that is very different from a nuclear weapon. Okay, so a, a nuclear weapon is a it creates a large explosion through a fission type reaction. Um, a dirty bomb is basically taking something like a teletherapy capsule, putting all that stuff in just a conventional explosive device and setting it off. And so the danger of the dirty bomb, honestly, is probably mostly just because of the trauma of the explosion, okay? Um, but in addition to that, you will have some radiologic contamination of, of individuals who are nearby the blast, okay? So you're going to get some of that substance on you. And you may inhale or ingest some of that substance. So those are some of the things that we worry about with a dirty bomb. Um, however, the, again, the actual explosion itself will probably cause more problems than any of the radiation that is, that is inside that event. Nuclear weaponry is uh, something that, uh, as, you, as many of you are aware of, is in the news often, and uh, most nations want to have one of these devices. This is a picture um, that Charles Levy, one of the, the pilots that flew over, I, I don't remember now at this point if this was Hiroshima or Nagasaki, but he took a picture after they dropped the bomb out of his B-29 bomber of the explosion. I think it's Nagasaki now that I think about it. Um, so what do we worry about with, with nuclear weaponry? There's there's um, the explosion itself. You have uh, a large explosion this time because you're actually having a nuclear reaction that's leading to this explosion, okay? And then after the explosion occurs, you then have oftentimes nuclear fallout, and these are highly radioactive um, particles that are now kind of falling from the sky and dusting the landscape, okay? Um, a lot of the intense initial blast of radiation is what's going to cause most of the injuries. You're going to have a radiation of, of people with very high doses of radiation after a nuclear event. Um, but you can have problems with the fallout as well. Um, and that's a little bit of a lower radioactivity, but, but can also be a problem. Uh, and this is Fat Man. This was the nuclear bomb that was dropped on Nagasaki. Um, I'll mention this briefly. The neutron bomb is something that has been discussed. It was kind of when I was a child in the Reagan administration. I don't know if uh, 
if I'm uh, sorry if it makes me seem a little young now to say that. But so in the Reagan administration, the neutron bomb was a big topic because they thought it was very cool that you could basically deploy a device that would give large amounts of radiation, but not a huge shock wave. And so we could kill lots of people, but not destroy the buildings. Right. So that was a that was kind of the idea. Um, mostly deployed as kind of a tactical device, um, kind of in battle was the idea. So you could kill the enemy and not you know, blow up entire cities. And that was kind of the idea of it. Uh, I thought it might be interesting to give a little perspective about what it would look like in San Francisco should a nuclear device go off. Um, I don't want anyone to have you know, nightmares about this or anything. This is kind of just an, an interesting discussion. Okay, So this pen... This pin drop is right over UCSF, okay, right where we are right now. And this is Little Boy. This is the bomb that was dropped on Hiroshima. And if that bomb were dropped right on UCSF, you can see that the fireball itself is not incredibly large, larger than any other bomb that we would have. But uh, the fireball itself is this orange area, um, and that would definitely take out the block, okay? The shockwave and thermal burns would probably extend, you know, out past Golden Gate Park and you know, getting pretty close to Geary Boulevard. That's, that's a little boy, the first nuclear weapon that was ever deployed in combat, okay? Um, the largest nuclear weapon that was ever deployed as a test um, uh, bomb was called Tsar Bomba. It was a 50 megaton device that was deployed uh, by the Soviet Union. And this was a test bomb. Um, this was never used in warfare, but it was detonated. Um, and you can see that fireball alone would encompass the entire city of San Francisco. And you would have third-degree um, thermal burns out to Fairfield. Okay, it's a massive explosion. They, uh, the Soviets at the time said they had been able to rig a bomb to be 100 megatons, and that bomb they thought could maybe get thermal burns almost to Santa Rosa. I mean, that's a massive explosion, um, but that bomb was never tested. Okay, out of the world of nuclear weapons and into nuclear reactors. Okay. Uh, this is one of the more pressing issues, because uh, we've seen these nuclear reactor <coughs> events um, happen a few times uh, in our history. Think of uh, instances like Chernobyl, um, instances like Fukushima and Three Mile Island. Um, and nuclear reactors are actually being decommissioned in the United States um, at a pretty a reasonably quick rate. Um, the most recent one to be decommissioned was down here in San Onofre. That reactor has been decommissioned. They don't, no, no longer have it. The only one in California now is Diablo Canyon, um, this is Diablo Canyon Nuclear Power Plant, and that's a few hundred miles south of us. So what do nuclear reactors do? The idea is for any power plant, how can we, quick, how can we effectively heat water to turn a turbine and, and then um, uh, create electricity? Uh, nuclear reactors use enriched uranium uh, to, to do this, and the benefit of it is it does not take a whole lot of fuel to heat this water, create the steam, turn the turbines. However, the downside of it is this fuel is very, again, radioactive and deadly. Um, so if it's not contained appropriately or you have some sort of disaster where the cooling mechanisms fail or the rods melt or something like that happens, then you've created a, you know, a public health disaster. Uh, <clears throat> the Japanese, uh, sorry, the Japan tsunami in uh, 2011 was our most recent um, uh, nuclear reactor um, event. Uh, it was a, the earthquake itself actually did not cause any damage to the reactor. What, 
what happened to cause the damage was the uh, tsunami afterwards took out their cooling systems. And uh, even though they had emergently shut off their uh, power or shut off their nuclear reactors, there's still residual heat uh, from the nuclear rods that they were not able to effectively cool. And this led to explosions in um, three, of the, three of the reactors. So there's a lot of, a lot of hysteria, a lot of things. This is, these are some things that I just got by typing into Google Fukushima um, nuclear, nuclear uh, explosion, okay? These are, these are websites that said, you know, the days of eating Pacific fish are now over. The California coast is now a, going to be a dead zone. Um, a plague of damaged thyroids is coming. Fukushima is the end of humanity, okay? So there's, there's a lot of misinformation and a lot of hysteria and panic that can be occurring from any nuclear event, um, and Fukushima is no exception. So what actually happened at this event? So again, there was no damage actually from the earthquake. Um, the uh, heat from the reactors that they were not able to cool because their cooling mechanisms failed ended up creating hydrogen explosions in their reactors. This is reactor number three that, uh, that had the... Uh, had a large explosion, and there were a few sequelae of these explosions. The first, of course, is you get radiation release into the air. So after the explosion in reactor number two, there was a large release of um, radiologic um, substances, mainly cesium, into the air. Um, but luckily, uh, they had actually evacuated the population of that area three days before that happened, so it was very little effect to the population from that. In terms of the actual plant itself, when the um, explosions occurred, this is reactor number one after the explosion, uh, there were no actual radiation casualties. There were six uh, workers who received uh, doses of about 25 rem um, beneath the level that would cause the acute radiation syndrome that we discussed, but still significant amount of radiation. In terms of the population of Fukushima, um, there were 146 total workers who received uh, 10 rems or greater of radiation that um, the health uh, officials are going to be following closely right, for many, many years. Okay? But the rest of the Fukushima population received maybe one rem over a lifetime is what they um, are um, estimating. So over the lifetime of people who continue to live in the Fukushima area, they may receive about one, about an abdominal CT scan worth of radiation um, extra in their lifetimes that otherwise with just normal background radiation they wouldn't have. And what about all this about the days of eating Pacific fish are over and our coastline of California is going to be affected? Uh, probably a little bit overblown. Um, there is measurable increases in radiation um, from this event uh, in the waters off the coastlines of the West Coast. Uh, however, most of the radiation increase has actually probably been caused by nuclear weapons testing um, over the last 50 years and not so much from this exact event. So we probably have more radiation floating in the ocean from nuclear weapons testing than we do from this Fukushima event. Um, they do show that fish caught off the coast of Oregon do have increased um, levels of radiation, but still probably insignificant to cause any damage to, to humans. This gentleman from an oceanographic institution uh, said, people are making irrational decisions about spending time at the coast or attributing starfish deaths to Fukushima. Dental x-rays and airplanes have greater exposures than what we are measuring in the water. Okay, gives a little bit of perspective of kind of what we're dealing with. 
The UN Scientific Committee on the Effects of Atomic Radiation said that radiation exposure following the nuclear accident at uh, Fukushima did not cause any immediate health effects. It is unlikely to be able to attribute any health effects in the future among the general public and the vast majority of workers. So this event, uh, up till this point, has been very well contained, and they're still, even now, working to continue to contain this event. But up until this moment, um, they've done a very good job of containing it, and unlike that we're going to be seeing many problems or many health effects. So let's bring it home a little bit. What about a radiation event that occurs in our city or something like that? Um, What do you do? How do you keep yourself um, as safe as you can um, and protect your family and friends? Okay, so if a radioactive event were to occur and you were already inside your home, what you should do is get to the center of the home, away from ceiling, away from walls, because this is where radioactive (laughs) substances would tend to accumulate. Turn off anything that would bring air into your home and wait for instructions, okay? If you are outside, again, one of the most dangerous effects of radiation would be to inhale it or ingest it. So cover your mouth with a cloth or a towel. Get to a building immediately. Before you go inside that building, you should take off all of your clothes that are contaminated. And they've been shown, it's been shown that most contamination um, from radioactive events, actually from most any contamination event, whether it be radioactive, chemical, um, biologic, uh, most contamination can be removed simply by taking off your clothing. Okay, So getting inside, removing your clothing, getting clean clothing on is, is important. Once you're inside, it will be important to stay inside until you hear otherwise from a health official. Okay, We call this sheltering in place. And this is why it's so important. You know, San Francisco, we talk about this all the time because of earthquakes, but it, it applies to any sort of disaster, and that is um, disaster preparedness. Having this home kit with water, medical supplies, food, things that you know are safe and not contaminated is uh, very important. Uh, Tap water uh, in these events, typically thought to be safe to use to decontaminate yourself, but you probably shouldn't drink it until you're told by uh, the health officials that it is safe to drink. Okay? And so up until that time, bottled water is, is kind of the preferred or uh, stored water. Other things that you can do to protect yourself during an event, um, We talk about three things that decrease your exposure to radiation or can increase your exposure to radiation, and that is time, distance, and shielding. So the time effects are pretty linear. So if I stand in front of 1,000 rads for five minutes, well, not 1,000 rads, that's that's incorrect. If I stand stand in front of something that's producing 5,000 rads an hour for 10 minutes or five minutes, I'll receive twice the dose at 10 minutes than I would at five minutes, okay? And if I stand for 20 minutes, I'll get twice the dose as I would at 10 minutes, okay? It's a linear effect. In terms of distance, this increases your dose exponentially. So if I stand at something that's producing that much radiation, and let's say I'm getting 10 rads standing 10 feet away, if I get 5 feet away, I'm going to get something like 40 rads, okay? So it's, it exponentially increases the closer you get. Then, of course, shielding is uh, extremely important. Um, All of you probably experienced getting an X-ray and having the lead uh, put on you um, to help shield from uh, radiation. Um, Again, depending on the type of radiation, um, you know, that will be more effective than others. And alpha radiation can be stopped by a piece of paper. Gamma radiation may penetrate through a foot of concrete, okay? Um, So it, it can depend. And then this device here is called a Geiger counter, 
Okay, that will let you know if something is radioactive. Okay, um, and then the other thing that some people, especially people who work in the radio radiation industry, so if you work at a nuclear power plant or at a Los Alamos or something like that, um, you use a dosimeter, and that is typically a badge that people wear that will tell people if they have received a certain dose of radiation over a certain time. And so it'll change a color, let's say, once it reaches some threshold of 10 rads or something like that. Okay. Other things just to mention briefly, um, many of you may have heard of potassium iodide um, as something that you should take after being exposed to radiation. Um, this does have some use. It's been shown to be effective uh, for specific types of radiation. Um, specifically, um, iodide-131 is a radioactive iodide. Um, and the idea is um, it's going to protect your thyroid if you take this. It will protect no other part of your body, and it will protect you from no other type of radiation other than radioactive iodine. Okay? Um, and the idea is it's going to saturate the thyroid gland um, with the non-radioactive iodide that you take before your thyroid gland takes up that radioactive iodide, okay? And it's going to protect from future cancers is the idea. And finally, just a quick note about half-life, okay? So you'll hear the half-life of radiation, and what does that mean? Um, <clears throat> so half-life means, roughly, it's the time it takes for one half of the radioactive substance or radioactive atoms to disintegrate. So it's not a fixed starting point. It's not a fixed ending point, okay? I may come across this radioactive substance after a billion years, and I would start measuring the half-life at that moment, even though it's been decaying for a billion years, okay? So it's not a moment. It's not a fixed end point or a fixed starting point. And just because something has decayed for a half-life doesn't mean that it is now a safe substance either. Okay, it's still radioactive. It's just half as radioactive as it was at the beginning of the time you were measuring it. So to put things in perspective, these are all substances that were released in the Chernobyl event. Okay, The radioactive iodine, its half-life is eight days, so it can become inert pretty quickly. The cesium-137, after 30 years, it's only gone through one half-life in that time. And you can see uranium-235, which is sprinkled kind of all around the core when it, when it had it, its explosion. That's half, that half-life is around 700 million years. And so the radioactive events at Chernobyl um, can have lasting consequences. And this is a picture of uh, Chernobyl. Um, they're trying to build a containment vessel around Chernobyl uh, right now. They expect to be done somewhere in 2030 or so um, to try to contain some of that 700 million years worth of uh, radiation that's, that's still, still flowing. So in summary, ionizing radiation, this is the type of radiation <laughs> that can harm you. Um, it's distinct from the non-ionizing form of radiation. Um, health effects of radiation uh, include the acute radiation sickness as, as kind of those acute effects. Um, in terms of long-term effects, you have cancer, birth defects, and mental health problems. Uh, the nuclear, uh, I'm sorry, the radiation threats that um, are, are things that we prepare most for or most familiar with uh, potentially happening are things like medical device exposures, uh, dirty bombs, and nuclear weaponry. Um, and I should have here, sorry, nuclear uh, power as well. And then uh, probably the most important point of the whole discussion is 
not just for radiation, um, but also for any type of disaster. Really important to have a dis- home disaster plan. Have disaster preparedness uh, plan at your home. Have extra food, extra water that you know is not contaminated um, so that you're able to uh, protect yourself during one of these events. Okay. And here's just a, a reference slide. Um, I'm happy to send out any references if people are interested. Okay. I'm happy to answer any questions you may have at this point. Um, please remind me, if I don't, to repeat your questions so that uh, people watching this will be able to hear it too. Okay? Yes? So the question was, she has a friend who uh, received radiation as a child and has now developed cancer, uh, mesothelioma cancer. The question is, how come it took so long, first of all, to show up, and then after it shows up, how come it now go, grows so rapidly? Um, and to answer the first part of that question, um, and when your friend initially received the radiation dose, it may have damaged um, some of those dividing cells only slightly. But then those damaged cells then divide themselves and then divide themselves again and then divide themselves again. And then it takes, over the course of time, many, many, many years before that damage can then compound to the point where it becomes dangerous. Um, in terms of why now it's growing so quickly, um, I'm not sure that I could answer that question intelligently because <laughs> I'm not, a, I'm not a, an oncologist or a cancer uh, doctor. I don't have a whole lot of experience treating uh, cancer itself. It is. It's a long latency period. I agree. Right. So um, I don't know the, the exact dose of a panoramic X-ray in terms of how much radiation you get beamed with when you get a panoramic X-ray. Um, but if I take it back to the other types of um, X-rays or um, CAT scanning devices, uh, for instance. Um, so you're looking at uh, receiving a, kind of a, a large dose of radiation at one time, um, and that dose in and of itself is going to increase your exposure or your possibility of cancer uh, long-term down the line, okay? And again, for someone who is, for someone who is very young, so as a small child, their risk of developing cancer 30 years from now is going to be higher than an adult who receives a dose of radiation from a medical, a medical therapy um, from them getting uh, cancer uh, later on. And so, for instance, I tend to be much more liberal with an 80-year-old who I want to look inside their belly than I am with a, you know, with a two-year-old, okay? Because I know that, um, first of all, the cells of a child are going to be dividing faster, and therefore they're more susceptible to radiation, and I also know that they have a lot longer lifetime to develop cancer from that effect that I've caused um, as well. Um, so with any type of radiation that a doctor puts on somebody, um, I think you just need to, you need to use it responsibly. And I think that's something that the medical field is getting better at, but it's something we need to improve on. So things like screening x-rays where we don't really have a reason to get the x-ray, we just want to check, Okay. Things like that, the guidelines on when we do those and why we do those, I, we ex- expect them to change a little bit as we learn more about the effects of radiation and what they can do long term. Sure. So the question was, um, in a radiation event where you have first responders and firefighters and, and paramedics and doctors and everyone that we're sending into these events, what are some things that can be done to protect them? <clears throat> So you could do probably a whole lecture on this for first responders, and first responders get lectures like this, okay? Um, whenever you are dealing with a radiation event like this, um, like, like the first responders in Fukushima had to do, uh, there's, there's a few things that, that can be done. The first is I, I mentioned those dosimeter badges. So there are, there are badges that can tell you how, how long you've been exposed um, and the amount of radiation that you have, and you can have policies in place that say, I'm sorry, if you're doing a non-critical type event, let's say you're clearing debris, 
you know, you can only receive, you know, five rads in, you know, for the day, and then you're pulled out, okay? Um, and your little dosimeter badge can tell you that. Um, whereas you may have a higher threshold for somebody who's doing life-saving work. You may say, well, you can receive up to, you know, 10 rads or something. I'm just kind of throwing out a number before we pull you out. If you're not using the dosimeter badges, if you know the dose of radiation that is coming out, you could just put time limits on how long somebody can stay in there. Okay, and that's that's probably the most common thing that we would do is say, you know, you, you can't spend more than 30 minutes in there. Uh, one of the kind of tenets of uh, EMS and first responder is the, the first thing that we have to do is make sure that a scene is safe for our responders. And if a scene is deemed unsafe, if we're not able to get in and out of that scene, uh, obviously there's always risk. But if, generally speaking, you're not able to get in and out of that scene uh, with your personnel intact, we won't go into that scene. We won't initiate it until we are sure that we can be safe. Um, the question was, does UCSF specifically have a role in, in a radiation disaster event? And I think that that's a complex question because it, it really depends on the event, um, and it really depends on how widespread the, the event is. Um, I can kind of tell you in the, in the event that a, a radiation expo a large radiation exposure that would create many casualties did occur within the city, um, the first thing that would happen would be... Um, activation of what's called our Emergency Operations Center, um, or the EOC, and that is a body where uh, we all come together uh, from multiple areas of kind of public governance and uh, health care, um, you know, um, uh, from infrastructure to um, uh, law enforcement to EMS to fire. We kind of get in this room and we strategize ways to manage this event from a central station. And uh, in any sort of large event, um, not just UCSF, but every hospital um, would, would be receiving patients, and every um, hospital has been, I don't have all the numbers, but every hospital kind of knows, you know, based on a casualty number, how many patients they may expect to get. And the Emergency Operations Center would be really key in making sure that no single hospital is overwhelmed with patients um, and that we're spreading the, you know, spreading the casualties out equally. If we get to a point that is, you know, overwhelms the city, then we're, then we're starting to talk about, you know, federal disaster response and state response, and, and then we, we start getting really into the weeds about it. But in terms of what UCSF itself would do, I don't know their specific disaster plan for radiation um, exposure, but they would definitely serve a role in the city um, if, there was a, if there was some sort of uh, large radiation exposure uh, where we expected a lot of casualties. Uh, if you have any other questions, feel free to uh, come approach me after, and we're happy to answer some more. Otherwise, thank you very much for your time. I appreciate it. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.